from the Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. <clears throat> For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, <clears throat> that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This morning, uh, friends, we start a new series uh, in our 11.15 services. We start a series in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Uh, And this morning we uh, look at the first 11 verses. But before we do that together, what I want to try and do very, very briefly is just set the scene. There are one or two things about Philippi that I think are helpful to know in terms of setting the scene uh, for the letter and why Paul stresses some of the things that he does in his letter to the Philippians. Paul, of course, is in prison as he writes this. It's several years after he was there. But uh, I want to set the scene. And the first thing to say about Philippi was that it was a very significant city in the ancient world. Uh, it was significant because it had uh, two things going for it geographically. Uh, the first was that it, had, it was an area of uh, gold mines, so it was quite wealthy off the back of, off the back of its mining. But the principal reason, I think, why it was such a significant city in the ancient world is because it was the gateway between east and west. So it, it, it lay between uh, Asia to the east, and Europe to the west. It was the gateway from Asia into Europe and vice versa. There was a mountain range, and it sat in a sort of a valley. There was quite a famous Roman road that ran through it, the Via Ignatia, the Via Ignatia, which made Philippi very, very significant because it was geographically very, very strategic. It was also the place that had quite a rich history. In 42 BC, it was the place where Octavian and Antony defeated Brutus and Cassius, who'd killed Caesar, of course, to, establish, to put an end to the Republic and establish uh, Rome as, a, as, as an empire. Uh, so it was well known. It was well known. It was significant. And therefore, biblically, it was a hugely strategic town. You remember at the start of the book of Acts, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses to uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we see it throughout the book of Acts, the gospel going out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and further and further afield. And in Paul's missionary journeys, he takes the Gospels into Asia. And then you remember in Acts 15, he has that dream where uh, he sees that European, that Macedonian 
northwest of, northeast of Greece, man, saying, come to us, bring the gospel to us. And so he does, and the way he goes is through Philippi, as you would to get from Asia, Turkey, into Europe. And so it's one of the first churches established in Europe, if not the first church established in Europe. And you can read all about that in Acts 16. And the first set of converts that Luke uh, tells us about in Acts uh, 16. And what an interesting bunch they are. And it's worth just thinking a little bit about them. You can go back and read it in Acts 16. It's an extraordinary chapter. They're an amazing bunch. You remember, he first meets Lydia, who's uh, a, a, a dealer in purple um, cloth. And purple cloth was a, a luxury item, a high, high-end luxury item in the ancient world. It cost a lot of money to create the purple dye. And um, so she almost certainly would have been quite a wealthy businesswoman. Uh, so he meets her by the river, and, and, and uh, she uh, comes to Christ. And the next encounter Luke tells us about is, is a slave girl he meets. If you remember, she has a, a spirit that allows her to see into the future. And so her owners are getting very wealthy off the back of it, of course, because you know, she can see into the future. And uh, Paul meets her, and um, essentially he casts out this spirit, and uh, her owners are furious, of course, because they've lost their, you know, money-making slave girl. And so they arrange for Paul and his companions to be thrown into prison, if you remember. And uh, we find Paul in prison praising God. Uh, she, sorry, the slave girl becomes the second sort of convert, if you like. And then Paul goes to prison, and uh, he's praising God, and there's an earthquake, and the, the, the doors to the jail are thrown open. And uh, Paul stays there because he wants to speak to the prison guard, who, of course, is absolutely overwhelmed by what is happening, and the fact that Paul shouldn't flee when the prison door is flung open. And he asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul leads him to Christ too. So there's your first three converts, or at least the first three converts that Luke tells us about in Acts 16. A wealthy businesswoman, somebody completely the opposite end of the spectrum, a slave girl, and this sort of rough and ready prison guard. Right from the word go, the gospel is subverting cultural norms. It's starting to build a kingdom quite like quite unlike, I should say, any other. It's starting to build God's kingdom, God's upside-down kingdom. And one of the key verses to the letter, it seems to me, is verse 27. Uh, you might just want to flip your eyes uh, across to it. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when I come, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Unity. It's one of the great themes of Paul's letter to the Philippians. What is it to be gospel people? What does it look like to be gospel people, to be saved people? It looks like, Paul says, unity. Both unity of heart, unity of mind, unity of purpose. One of the great themes of the letter is how we maintain kingdom unity, that unity that Christ has won for us, despite our cultural differences and cultural pressures. And heaven knows there were cultural differences in the first converts at Philippi. In fact, right from the word go, it seems to me, if you come back to verse 1, Paul, I think, is already beginning to lay the foundations for church unity. He reminds them that what unites them now is far greater than what could possibly divide them. Paul and Timothy, he says, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. 
Do you see what he's saying? I think even, even from the word go, often Paul's um, greetings are very significant. And they often set the scene for the whole letter. I think here is no different. He's saying this, isn't he? Look, in Christ you have a new identity. We're saints in Christ. We must, we must remember, mustn't we, that saints is not a special category of person. There aren't run-of-the-mill Christians and then saints. In the Bible, when you become a Christian, you become a saint. They're synonymous. The same thing. That is what we are. To be a saint, saint is a Bible word. It literally means to be set apart from something for something. So in the Bible, it's to be set apart by God for God and his purposes in our lives, in our world. We are his people. We are members of his kingdom, his family by faith in Jesus. And that is the most fundamental thing about us. That, the fact that we're saints in Christ is the, is the most true thing of us. I mean, there are lots of things that are true about me that I could use to identify myself. You know, my upbringing, my, my nationality, my education, my, um, you know, my bank balance, whatever it is. There are lots of ways that I could choose to identify myself. Friends, there are lots of ways, in fact, that the world does use to identify ourselves that, that advertisers precisely look to see, you know, where we shop and what we Google so that they can categorize us. As, as, as this kind of person, that kind of person. Paul says, you know, the most fundamental thing about you, if you're following the Lord Jesus, is that you're a saint, regardless of whatever background, you're a saint now. Already he's laying the building blocks for church unity, it seems to me. What unites us is far greater than what might divide us. Okay, into verses at 1 to 11 more, more properly. Two points I want to draw out this morning, friends. Here's the first. Uh, Paul says, as those with a common identity in Christ, we also have a common purpose and a common promise. A common purpose and a common promise. A common purpose, first of all, that's verse 5. Have a look at it with me, friends. I'll I'll read a little bit beforehand, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The church, says Paul, is in, is, is in partnership with him in the gospel. In fact, as you read the letter, we discover that they've been supporting him financially. He's been around spreading the gospel in all parts of the world, and they've been, they, they've been supporting him financially. And Paul says, you are in partnership with me in the gospel. Now, the Greek word translated partnership is the word koinonia, and it's often um, translated in our English Bibles as fellowship, fellowship. What comes into your mind when I say the word fellowship? I'd be interested. What comes into your mind when I say the word fellowship? I think for many of us, I think for me naturally, it's sort of tea and coffee that comes into my mind when I hear the word fellowship. You know what I mean? It's that quiche moment. That's what sort of comes into my mind when I hear the word fellowship, which is unhelpful because, in fact, that's not really what the word means in in New Testament times. That's not really what koinonia meant. Uh, Somebody wrote this, fellowship, koinonia, in in, in its original meaning, was never passive, always linked to an action. It was less about being together and more about doing together. In other words, it was about joint participation, commitment to something together. So again, in the ancient world, the the word often had um, commercial connotations. It, It was a word commonly used for people who were going into business together. So, um, you know, one thinks of the choir. The choir decide to open up a pizza parlor in Summertown. 
and they persuade you know, one of their members to, uh, they persuade Ron, let's say, to, um, to, to open this up and to be, to be chief pizza maker. And they say to Ron, we'll back you, we'll all be in this together. You know, some of us will be able to provide financially to buy the property. Some of us are pretty good in the kitchen. We'll help do this. Some of us are pretty good at waiting, and we'll do that. You know, we'll serve on tables. I'll be front of house. I'll answer the phone and put the bookings. You know, I'll serve the drinks. We've all got various ways in which, and we'll all commit to this. We'll commit our time. We'll commit our money. There's risk involved, of course, opening up a restaurant, but that's what we're going to do. Now, if they did that, they would be partners in the pizza, technically. They would have a koinonia in the pizza, well, that's, that, that's what the word means. Partnership in the gospel means joint commitment to, joint responsibility for, joint risk in the gospel, taking the gospel out. As God's family, we've been adopted into the family business. And God's family business, if you like, is growing the kingdom of God in people's lives and in communities partnership in the gospel. We're all in this together. We've got joint participation and joint commitment in the work of building God's kingdom in our lives and our communities. What does this mean for us, friends? I think it means this, doesn't it? At least it means we, we, we cannot be passive members of a church fellowship. It seems to me actually that's a contradiction in terms as far as Paul is concerned. The trouble with sort of bystanding, if you like, and thinking, well, I, you know, I come to church for what I can get out of it. There are several issues with that. One of them, actually, is that it won't work because you're not actually in the fellowship. You'll get nothing out of it. You won't get anything out of it. If you don't commit into it, you can't be passively in a fellowship. It's about joint commitment. It's about working together alongside each other. And actually, as we do that, that's when we experience the blessings of being in partnership together, being in true fellowship. That's when we experience the grace of God working in us and through us with one another to build God's kingdom. It just won't work. That's the paradox of kingdom life, isn't it? It's as we give our lives to something, in this case as we give our lives to Christ, as we lay our lives down, serving him, loving one another, that's how we get life. Isn't that Jesus' point in Mark 8? So as we give our lives to him, we get life. That's the paradox of the Christian life, and it's true. The more we commit to partnering with each other in the work of kingdom building, the more we'll experience the blessing of fellowship, true fellowship. The more we'll, if you like, experience his grace, the more we'll get out of it. Someone was saying yesterday, I was at the Children and Families Training Day, that they had read, I haven't had a chance to check whether this is true, but they said they had read that organizations that demand much of their volunteers, that call for a high commitment, that give people a big vision and put quite a, you know, something significant on their shoulders, actually do better than those that say, oh, you don't really need to, you know, just do what you can, just turn up when you can. Actually, those do worse than ones that actually put quite a high commitment on their shoulders. Because there's something about... Talking about being in it, having a big vision, having a, being given responsibility for something that actually invigorates people. I, I can see how that could very much be true. I think it's true in the church. You know, I, we've got a holiday club coming up in the summer. We've been in Cutslow Park for the last couple of years while well, we've been waiting for this uh, wonderful building to be completed. And now that it is, we're going to run our holiday club um, for Nought to Elevens in the new building in the summer. Big holiday club where we reach out to church children, but also to children in the community. God willing, we want to see 160 Nought to Eleven-year-olds in that building having a week of sort of gospel talks and fun and crafts and games and all the rest of it. It should be fantastic. But for that to happen, friends, we need to be partnering in the gospel. We need all of us to be playing our part 
in making that happen. And there are 101 ways, just like in a restaurant, there are 101 ways to get involved, some front of house, some back of house, behind the scenes. So it is in church ministry, so it is with Holiday Club. Uh, there's a blue board at the back, and I commend it to you, have to have a look at it at the end of the service. With a whole, Leslie's written a whole list of things that need to be done. I've got a few here. I mean, there's everything from being at the front and being in drama teams and, and leading a den through to serving coffee or helping with the craft or tidying up chairs at the end of the day. What else have we got? Helping to design a T-shirt before the thing happens, making coffee, badge making. I mean, there's just 101 things that you think, you know, I couldn't do that, I couldn't do that, but you know what, I could do that. And as we do that, as we all do that, we'll experience true fellowship, partnership in the holiday club partnership in that aspect of gospel ministry. And it doesn't matter what we're doing, whether we're up the front in the drama or giving the talks or leading a den or we're stacking chairs at the end of the day, it's all gospel ministry. It's all gospel ministry, equally significant. It's all partnership. Friends, I commend it to you to think, is there a way I can partner in this ministry, in this aspect of gospel ministry? Maybe make a coffee, maybe stack a chair, maybe lead a den, whatever it might be. Come and talk to me or Leslie, have a look over on the board. We'd love to talk to you. Friends, that is our common purpose. Secondly, more briefly, our common promise. Our common promise. That's verse 6. He goes on to say, he thanks God for the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What a truth that is. Just have a look. If you've got it open in front of you, friends, just, have a, just, just, just look at it for a moment and just roll it around your mind just for a moment. See, the Philippians' partnership with Paul, the fact they're supporting him financially, is evidence to Paul that, that God has begun a work in them. The, the, the work of salvation has begun in them. And Paul is sure that what God starts, he always finishes. He is, if, if, if ever you've done those surveys, you know, he's a complete finisher, if ever you've done one of those things. He always finishes what he starts. He, he never gives up. That's the point. He never gives up on his people. He keeps us. As we lean on him, he keeps us. In fact, more than that, he completes us. He completes the work he begins. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Now, verse 11, I think, tells us what the goal is of, of his work. One day will be perfectly pure and blameless, filled with righteousness, so that God is praised and glorified. So that people say, what an extraordinary God to so completely save and transform sinners in that way. And as followers of Jesus, that, is, that destiny is not in doubt. Not because we are strong, not because we are faithful, but because God is strong and God is faithful. And he finishes what he starts. It's a powerful truth, it seems to me, in moments of battle, in moments of struggle, in the doubt, in the pains of life. As we stand in front of some aspect of our life and we think, can I possibly go on? How am I going to survive this? I see no resources in me equal enough to meet this thing. It, it is too great. I come back to verses like verse 6, which we need to have written big in our hearts, part of our spiritual armory. You know, what God has studied, he will complete. It's a truth to meditate on, I think. I read this from a, an American um, uh, 
counsellor, which I thought was very helpful. He said this, Imagine a house for sale that is a handyman special. One buyer sees the house as it is, the crumbling chimney, the overgrown shrubs, the broken windows, the 1930s kitchen, the missing shingles, the outdated wiring, the roof that should have been replaced 10 years ago. And his shoulders sag and he walks away. Too much work, not enough hope. But another buyer sees the same house but looks ahead to what it will be when it's restored with the children playing football in the garden, with the guests laughing together on the patio, with a wonderful meal cooking in the kitchen to be enjoyed by everyone around the table. Same house for each buyer, yes. Same possibilities, yes. But only one buyer who can see what needs to be done to make a new reality. We have many reasons Friends, while we might doubt our own strength in the face of struggles, but verse 6 says, do not doubt God's. Do not doubt God's. You know, it cost him his son to win us. It cost us his son to start us on the road to heaven. Now, if it costs him his son, will he not also give us what we need to keep us going? If he's going to do that much to start us, will he not give us the grace to keep going? and bring us to completion. Paul puts it brilliantly, doesn't he, in Romans 8, when he says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if he gave up his son, he'll keep us going. He's got grace enough for the journey. Of course he has. The American uh, counselor goes on to say this, as you stand in the front yard of your life and look at the house you are living in, what do you see? What has got your eye? Do you only see the problems and give up and walk away? Do you only see the problems and become so defensive that you angrily pretend they aren't there? Or do you see the problems the way God sees them, with hope in his power to change you? There is hope in every and any circumstances, not because we're strong, but because we are confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We must finish. We have a partnership. We have a promise. Commitment to each other to build God's kingdom in our lives and our communities and a commitment from God to finish in us what he has started. And those are two truths on which to root our lives. And what is going to make this happen? What's going to oil the wheels of this? And the answer is love. And Paul has much to say, and we can say nothing more this morning. So I will simply close by reading those verses to us. And this is my prayer, says Paul, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. Amen.